everyone. Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this is podcast number 202. And in today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Karim Khan. He is a Canadian sports physician, a professor at the University of British Columbia, and the editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I'm so excited to have him on. I've been uh, he's sort of been my wish list guest for such a long time, and I'm so happy that we were able to connect at the combined sections meeting in Anaheim, California, a few weeks ago. And so I interviewed Dr. Khan and Dr. Jill Cook in front of a live audience, and this is part two of that interview. Jill Cook's interview was last Monday. Today is Dr. Karim Khan, and what we talk about with Dr. Khan is, is uh, we talk about advocacy for physical therapists? Can physical therapists detect red flags? Does direct access work? Who is leading musculoskeletal research and pushing the evidence forward? The importance of being physically active role models for our patients, which is huge. Uh, how you can utilize social media to garner interest in niche fields. And make sure you stay all the way to the end because we have a great Q&A with Dr. Khan and Dr. Cook and just a lot more. Um, it was great having Dr. Khan on the show. He, he offers such great advice and his support for the profession of physical therapy and promoting an active lifestyle is, is just, it's wonderful. It's really, really great. So I wanna th again thank him for coming on. And before we get to the interview, I just wanna remind everyone that today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. Audible has about 180,000 books at its disposal. So if you're looking to listen to books or magazines on the go, then head over to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart, and you will get a free download and a free month of Audible. I listen to Audible every day when I am commuting on the subway and on buses and walking around the city. So Again, you can head over to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart, get your free month, get your free download, and get started with Audible. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy today's podcast with Dr. Karim Khan. Um, welcome. We are at CSM in Anaheim, California, and I am sitting next to Dr. Karim Khan, and I will allow him to do his own intro because he'll probably do it better than I will. So Dr. Khan, go ahead. Hi, Karen. Thanks for letting me be on the podcast. Congratulations oh, on, on your show. And I uh, like the title of it, Healthy, Wealthy and Smart. Uh -huh. So two out of three. Actually, um, <laughs> I probably zero out of three is probably honest, <laughs> but uh, I'll pretend they've got two or three out of those three. Um, it's great to be at uh, CSM for the first time, the combined sections of meeting of the American Physical Therapy Association. And I always feel privileged to be among physiotherapists because I think uh, physical therapists, physiotherapists, <laughs> Um, we've got a ton to offer and uh, in my field of sports and ortho they have really played a major role in my education and in uh, in the work i think physios are the engine room you know, of the clinics and uh, i've been lucky to work with people like professor jill cook and professor kate crosley really hands-on and referred patients to jenny mcconnell and i've got to know a lot of world-leading physios through my job so i feel very fortunate and um, spoiled probably in a lot of ways so I have a great admiration and respect for physios and I think your profession has a massive evidence base underpinning it. Um, in terms of my own background, I graduated from medicine in 1984 and then I did a specialist training program in sports medicine. So by the mid-90s I'd specialised in sports medicine. I was interested in research as well because I thought there were questions that we couldn't answer and so I was fortunate to get involved in a PhD program and at 2000 
I moved to Canada from my original home of Australia, which people will have guessed by now. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> from Melbourne, Australia, I moved to Vancouver in Canada, and I've been a professor there at the University of British Columbia since then. And uh, the last few <coughs> years, I've been the editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine as well, the BJSM. And that's actually a physio journal. Um, our target audience is physios, and our secondary audiences are other clinicians, <coughs> um, including doctors. But uh, our number one audience is physios. So, and we have member societies from countries all around the world. So, you know, I feel lucky that I'm embedded in a physio environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you also do a podcast. Um, I enjoy the opportunity to learn from folks and listen to podcasts. And uh, so, yeah, and I think, you know, there's a lot of good podcasts. Eric Mayra runs a mm-hmm. good set. Yep. We've got Jimmy McKay in the room here today who does the pint, uh, the PT podcast. Mm-hmm. And you know, yours are going really well. And I think it speaks to social media, which we're going to get onto later. Yep. But I think there's this education channel for people now that wasn't available when I was growing up. And so I think that's a really great opportunity for many folks to get free quality mm-hmm. you know, conversations like the one I just listened to with Professor Jill Cook. And so, um, yeah, it's nice to a small role if, if people feel that the BJSM podcasts are contributing. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. So if you don't, if you have not subscribed to BJSM, do it because they have some amazing interviews. Um, really great stuff. So get on it if you're not on it already. Um, okay. So, you know, we sort of went back and forth as to what we wanted to talk about. And at first I said, oh, let's talk about tendinopathy. And he said, actually, um, why don't you talk to Jill Cook instead? And I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> so I'll try and make that happen as well. Um, and we did, which was great. Um, so we're going to talk about more sort of bigger picture issues happening in the world of physical therapy right now. One of the biggest, at least here in the U.S., is direct access. So you've been obviously lived in a lot of different places where that's more the norm. And so does it work in in your does it work and and do you feel like here in the u.s are we lagging behind a little bit i know that's a tough question you don't have to answer that if you don't want to but um the main question is is does it does direct access work yeah thanks karen and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that and then touch on physios prescribing exercise and then social media so in terms of direct access I'm not any sort of expert on american pt mm-hmm. and that's not why you've got me on the show mm-hmm. um and i'm here to speak from a clinician hat where I referred patients um, to physios and I had physios refer patients to me and we were working uh, communally under one roof and very much um, as equals with the podiatrists and with the soft tissue therapists, the massage therapists and with psychologists and sports nutritionists. So I was fortunate to grow up in a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. clinic setting and then the owners and the leadership was you know, horizontal in the sense that it was from all different disciplines. And so that's what I was used to. And the patients could certainly book straight in with the physio and then they could be they could uh, pay the physio directly and they could get money back from insurance up to a point, you know, from physio as well. And then those physios would sometimes refer the patient on to me when I hadn't seen the patient before. So I'd be, um, as a sports medicine specialist, I'd be referred patients by the physio. Mm-hmm. And similarly, there'd be situations where I would have a physio referred to who came in to see me and then I would refer them to the physio. So um, it absolutely does work so if we think what the concerns might be and you might be able to help me out here but when I was thinking about them there's this issue of red flag mm-hmm. like let's say someone walks in with cancer 
And the idea is the myth, you know, I think moving, sticking with the myth theme mm-hmm. that you touched on with Jill, the myth is that a doctor's going to detect it and the physio isn't. Well, I'd like to see the evidence for that. Um, you know, I think that physios are well trained in red mm-hmm. flags. I think uh, a physio who sees musculoskeletal patients, for example, you know, all week, um, if someone comes in with pain that's you know, persistent, it's night pain, um, it's behaving differently because the physio has this great pattern, of, it's pattern recognition, and because the physio knows the pattern of regular, the physio is going to say this is weird, and the physio is going to think this could be cancer. So I don't buy that um, one about the red flags. Yeah. If we stick to the one um, about maybe damaging the patient, so let's say someone's had a shoulder operation and they've had a couple of um, little nails put in to hold the labrum in place, a couple of uh, screws, mm-hmm. whatever those anchors, a couple of anchors put in. You know, the physios are trained to handle that and uh, they work sure. with the surgeons in the protocol. So again, I don't see that a physio is going to go and put this person in massive external rotation and abduction and rip the anchor out. You know, So I don't buy that argument. You know, this idea of having someone to tell you how many times you can see a patient, like the over-servicing um, argument, if that's one of them. Again, all our professions are self-regulated and if someone thinks that doctors could regulate people which I'm not saying they are, but you know the doctors need to look at themselves. Obviously, we know that there's a massive issue about over-medication over mm-hmm. right now, over-servicing too much medicine, not necessarily to make money, but just because just of being misguided. And we know that there's a you know, very big concern about the amount of arthroscopy, for example, in ways that isn't um, evidence-supported. And so I don't get this idea of someone sort of having oversight over the physio in terms of how many you know to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I was fortunate enough to talk to Emma Stokes, the president of the oh, World yeah, yeah, Confederation yeah. of Physical Therapy, through the podcast medium that you're mentioning. Yep. And you know, she was saying that that obviously direct access is in some countries and not in others. And mm-hmm. she was saying that not all physios want direct access. Um, and you know, and the whole point is that they should have the choice. And then they might say, you know, how they want to work. So physios have got excellent training. Um, you know, they're as capable as every profession. I see the professions as being, you know, equally run and equally capable. And you know, um, to me, I'm just confused. Like, I don't understand why you wouldn't let someone go directly to physio. I, I, I agree. And I also like that you brought up sort of the, the two-way street of direct access so that it's, it's the doctor referring to the physio and it's the physio referring, to, referring out to the doctor. And I just think that it, it builds for the patient a lot of trust on, on both ends. Um, and yeah, I don't, I mean, it, I live in New York State, and so we have partial direct access. So someone can come for 10 visits or six weeks, and then if they're not better, then they have to be referred on. There's 18 states in the U.S. that have unrestricted direct access, and the therapists that live in those states love it. Um, and, and I agree. I mean, phys- physical therapists, it's, it's now a doctoral-level program. It's seven years of schooling for all the students that are in here know that all too well. Um, <laughs> Because they're they're still in it, but yeah, the red flag things I don't buy that either. I I we're trained to to see a red flag, and and we're trained for to refer out when necessary or when we think hmm this this something about this is a little fishy maybe it needs a little more exploration. So I don't know I don't, and and I've also heard the that some physios don't want direct access. I don't know. I don't know if it's just they're not used to it or it's a little, I don't know. I, I don't know why they would. 
And I think that could be okay. Like no one's saying yeah, that if you yeah, should, because in your okay. practice you could make a pattern of saying, I want someone, you know, seen first. So I think um, that second argument doesn't really wash mm-hmm. with me. I bet when you, with your patients, you'll sometimes refer earlier than the six weeks. Like you'll, sure. you know, it's a ridiculous timeline. Like what's the difference between five weeks right. and seven weeks? Like if you see someone who needs an ACL reconstruction, then, you know, you might refer them on early to get that mm-hmm. going. Plus do the prehabilitation program and help them in the ways that you can. So, mm-hmm. um yeah, I think it's time for the regulators to get on board and uh, go with the evidence. And I don't see there's any evidence that they have on their side. Yeah, and, and the evidence is really that direct access, at least in low back pain patients, is shown to even decrease costs. So when you talk about that triple aim of healthcare, good quality care, timely, and at a, at a decreased cost, then physical therapists really are ideally positioned to step into that role of the triple aim. And in terms of reasonable cost, if you think of it from a business point of view, you know, you're actually adding a competitor into the market. And so mm-hmm. there's actually regulation to stop Google dominating everything. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, they do like, so really if you have physios sort of competing with primary care doctors and things for quality musculoskeletal care, then that fits with, um, I understand the American you know, model of um, free enterprise. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And I just want to make a point about uh, PT, PhDs, because you made the point there's a doctoral program in the first place. And in terms of research, we really need to celebrate the physios who have pushed the evidence forward. And if you think of great studies just off the top of my head, you know, Jules' PhD mm-hmm. that revolutionised the approach to tendon pain, Kay Crosley's PhD that revolutionised the approach to patellofemoral pain and a bit of a southern hemisphere bias there. But to move to Sweden, we had the New England Journal of Medicine paper by Richard Frobel, now, you know, the first randomised controlled trial of physio against surgery, you know, early, early physio versus mm-hmm. early surgery for ACL injury, and showing convincingly that there was no need to rush to early surgery, you know, showing that you could save 50% of uh, patients having an ACL reconstruction because they would respond well to the strength and balance program. Now, Ricard is a physio and a PhD, and, you know, I could go on. So I think in terms of the body of evidence base, you know, I'd respectfully suggest there may be more in the musculoskeletal field, which is the area that I work in, by physios than there are by doctors. Mm. As far as research is concerned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of times as the clinician, so kind of in the trenches with the patients and not being that researcher, that maybe that's taken for granted about how many PTs really are the ones leading the, the way as far as musculoskeletal research is concerned. And I can you know, vouch that because I do get a chance to visit countries. So um, you know, I was in Sweden and Norway um, two weeks ago and I was in Netherlands last week. And it's the physios in all these countries who are leading musculoskeletal research and sports research. It's absolutely the physios mm-hmm. doing that. I can vouch for that. Yeah, and even in, you know, like we were talking about earlier in the uh, fields of pain, it's it's physiotherapists leading the charge there as well with Laura Mosley or David Butler. And so I think it's it can even move a little bit beyond musculoskeletal. And, and yeah, I think that's something that people definitely take for granted. You know, when you're reading these papers, you don't realize how much the 
profession of physiotherapy has really moved forward in the past, what, maybe 20 years? Yeah. I don't know, you, yeah. you would know better than I would. Yeah, and actually Gwen Joel made that point, you know, speaking of another great PhD who revolutionized the field, in this case, neck pain. So Gwen made that point that she feels that physios, it's been about 20 years and mm -hmm. she'd have a better perspective than I would. But that's something you and I you know, can work on and other people in the room, like we can make sure this is, you know, we could potentially feature that in BJSM or, you know, we could sort of try and get it on some sort of repository or mm -hmm. in the PT First program, for example, they might emphasize that because I think it's, um, it adds to the credibility of the field. It's like we're a top field. We don't have anything to apologize for. We don't need to be you know, the handmaidens of someone deciding whether they can see us or not. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So kind of having the profession of, of physical therapy or physiotherapy really be presented as top researchers, top of the field, versus the people that just get told what to do by the prescription from the doctor. And you give me an idea, you know, because there's this whole idea that um, someone, let's give an example of a surgeon to keep it uh, away from us personally. Um, <laughs> you know, telling the physio what sort of rehab to do, um, delegating as it were. I mean, you know, for those of us that know surgeons, and I've got great orthopedic surgeon friends and they've said this, I mean, they don't know the detail and the quality of the exercises that a physio can prescribe and then the manual therapy that a physio can do as well and then the whole range of exercises. So it's not like the surgeon could do the rehab and they're just busy and then they're delegating. It's <laughs> like they have no idea of the level. If you're talking about Ann Cools on shoulder rehab or you know, the world's best physios, like the surgeons have got no idea. They'd be mm -hmm. just as lost as we would be if they throw us in the middle of the operation and we have to start dealing with the anchors and the threads. You know? So let's get over that myth to say that, well, the doctors know the stuff and then the physios are executing. It's like, no. You know, they absolutely have no idea about the details of high quality, you know, the sort of physio that you'll, you mm -hmm. know, rehab that Jill Cook was just talking about. There's no doctor can do that. No surgeon can do that. So let's just be honest. Yeah. And I think that kind of moves right into the next thing that we were going to talk about. And that's sort of having the profession of physical therapy be positioned as the leaders in sort of exercise as medicine. Um, and, and in the media, I think there's more and more talk about exercise as medicine for for various i mean you, you look at some i mean it could cure everything from like a headache to i don't know the eating disorders it seems to be but um for physical therapy do you feel like this is physical therapists should be staking their claim on on that exercise as medicine bit yeah, thanks, Karen. I think um, you, know, you mentioned sort of the leading, and I think physios can play a massive role in this. I think everyone has a role to play. So mm -hmm. I think um, there will be different folks leading in different settings. And one framework that I like for this idea of physical activity for health is called the seven investments. And um, a group of people got together and they sort of made the point that for us to make the world more physically active, um, it's going to have to that'll have to happen at, in sort of at least seven settings, if you just don't mind me briefly going through yeah, them. Yeah, but it makes the point that the built environment, you know, if you don't have a walkable environment, it's hard to be physically mm -hmm. active. It makes the point about transit, because if you can jump on a tube in London, it's a lot more efficient than getting around in a car. They talk about schools, you know, which is obvious, but um, a lot of schools don't have good physical, you know, healthy activity yeah. programs. And there's a program in Canada called Action Schools where the kids do some physical activity in maths and they do physical activity walking around the classroom and things. It's not just about PE because actually PE often only has four minutes of physical activity in it, but that's a separate <laughs> point. PE being physical education, right, because kids are waiting in line to get a chance to oh, right. do the vault. 
So it's about built those first three things, the built environment, transit, and you know, building it into your school day, like walking, being dropped off uh, half a mile outside of school, having a walking school bus. It's all about building physical activity into your regular day. Obviously, there needs to be community environments like community play areas and programs. The mass media needs to do a role for education and then sport has a role if we actually do it rather than just watch the Super Bowl. Um, but, and then the seventh then is the health professions. So if you look at that perspective, it's like, well, actually the health professions have only got a relatively small but important mm -hmm. role. Obviously, they'll influence education as well. But if you were Justin Trudeau or President Obama, um, or President Donald Trump, for example, um, <laughs> then you need to take this um, seven, so you need to have this broad perspective and often people say, well, what about the workplace? So it's an important point because it's not about one clinician, you know, talking to one patient mm -hmm. to make the difference. And if you look at smoking as a parallel, that wasn't done by one clinician talking to one patient. Sure. But they're legislating people to go into freezing some, you know, parts of the outside to smoke and everything. So. If we, if we start from that perspective, then we jump into our clinician hats and we're okay, we're one of seven or eight sectors. Um, in that sector, I think physios can obviously do you know, a great job because again, your training is about physical activity and about the body. So if someone says, I can't walk because I've got knee osteoarthritis, then a physio is a perfect per person to help fix that and get people moving. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a terrific area um, within physio as part of everyday practice. So if someone's coming in for um, shoulder pain, then it can also be like how much physical activity you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then just the quick message going, you know, look, you know that if you um, do, you know, 30 minutes of physical activity and walking's okay, you're gonna halve your risk of cancer, um, you know, but it's up to you. <laughs> so I never really thought about putting it in those words, but yeah, that'll definitely get people moving. Um, and do you feel that, I mean, this is obviously a, a global issue. It's more like you said, than just one patient to one clinician. And what, what sort of things need to happen to kind of get that more global word out? Or even, in, let's, we could take the Canada or the US, sort of more of a nationwide message. I think we can be role models and we need to be mm -hmm. sort of visible role models. So in my osteoporosis clinic that I did in the early 2000s for obviously 80 year old people with osteoporosis on average, I had my bike in the actual room when so I seen the patients and it wasn't safe to have the bike outside. And so they'd see the bike and then they say, you know, do you ride your bike? And so it's like, yep. And so it's a way of sort of signaling not that that was my purpose, but it's about vivifying an active lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in our communications and things, we shouldn't be shy, you know, about that. Um, I think we need, uh, you know, obviously we should be looking at ourselves to make sure we're doing it. So I think there's data that you know, some doctors don't uh, meet the guidelines. So I think that's, terrible that's like the smoking doctor um so um, i won't speak for physios but um yeah i think and then when you do it and I, I tried to do it so i sort of um actually do accumulate more than 60 minutes of physical activity most days but in 2012 i kept a record to make sure and mm. I, I was successful in um accumulating more than 60 minutes of physical activity every day for that year um and it was a leap year but that's okay <laughs> um, um but it was tough and i'd failed a couple of years consistently before that, so it was mm -hmm. about my fourth or fifth year where I was trying. And what I learned was that you have to schedule as number one priority and you have to talk to your wife and people about it. So that if you get home at 10 o'clock and you haven't seen her, you know, you go, I've got to go for my walk. She doesn't think you're crazy. Well, she knows I'm crazy, but, um, you know, or you visit, you fly in someplace and it's a conference and it's like, like, before I go to dinner, I have to actually go and do this. So one, you have to prioritize it in your day 
another way then will be you have a walking meeting with someone where look, we can do this mm. as a walk. So it changes your mindset because it mm-hmm. becomes the, the number one priority. And the problem with saying we'll do it tomorrow um, is that then tomorrow you say we'll do it tomorrow and you genuinely mean it. And so I don't like the f- like three or four times a week thing the most days of the week because you can very genuinely think I'll do it tomorrow because I've got mm-hmm. those days. So I think mm-hmm. my practical suggestion would be that we should try it ourselves because that will give us empathy and, and practical solutions with our patients and friends and community. Um, I think you've got to try and just do it every day so it becomes habituated and there's data, you know, I think there's psychological stuff about habits and uh, yeah, I think commuting is a great way but that's where if the infrastructure isn't supportive, you know, it's a problem. So, yeah, I think um, my take home message is give it a go yourself and then you'll be in fine shape to advocate mm-hmm. for it. But it does bring me on to nutrition and obesity. If we could do that briefly, I'd yeah, be grateful. Yeah, sure. I think the short version is that there's the myth of physical activity will reduce you, keep you in a healthy body weight. And what I say to patients is we've got to separate those two things. If you want to be healthy, the single biggest thing you can do for your health, as I mentioned, reducing risk of cancer by half, reducing risk of Alzheimer's, all those things is to be physically active. So it's the most sensible thing you can do. It's equally as powerful as smoking is harmful, you know, as you know. So mm-hmm. there's absolutely no dispute about that. Now, if the person says, I want to get into a smaller pair of jeans, then I say, well, you know, good for you if that's a goal. You know, it's up to you. It's not my, my goal. But if that's your goal, that's fine. But it's not going to be through exercise. And so the secret to the smaller pair of jeans is through your fork. Um, and, uh, you know, they have to they have to make choices as to what you eat. Because we all know that you can ex- if you look at the calories on certain food choices, you have to spend a lot of time walking mm-hmm. and running. It's ridiculous. You can absolutely, you can't exercise your way out of bad food choices. And then I'm going to be a bit controversial here, but the simple group of foods that are, you know, driving obesity, number one, I'm sure, is carbohydrates. And you know, I just flew here from, and I'll be concise, but I just flew here from Vancouver. So there were choices at breakfast um, in the Vancouver airport, in the in the lounge, the you know the posh part where you're meant to be well taken care of. And so you know there were the Danish pastries, the, the pastries, but there was a different section. So you weren't just forced to have the carbohydrates because there's also bread and bagels. Like that was a separate set of choices. <laughs> and there was also porridge, an oat, you know, oatmeal porridge, which is healthy grains. So that was oatmeal. And then there were the cereals in a separate part. If you didn't like those <laughs> things, you'd already come across. And then, of course, there were the fruits. There were some grapes and pineapples, which we know can be good. Mm-hmm. And they were the food choices, except for some boiled eggs, I have to admit. Okay, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's just this ocean of carbohydrate, and it's very difficult to choose what people might think of as a balanced you know, mm-hmm. nutrition. Mm-hmm. And then the short version on carbohydrates is that it drives up your insulin. Insulin's a fat-storing hormone, and so if you want to store fat because you're worried there's not going to be food around, then... <laughs> You know, carbohydrates are great choices and they're very effective at that. So, you know, I haven't been hungry, you know, for a long time and I've been the same weight, you know, for eight years and I lost a bunch of weight when I was trying to prove a guy wrong who was saying that you could eat bacon and eat butter and eat all these fatty things. And I thought, well, that sounds crazy. I'm going to give it a go. (laughs) And to my surprise, instead of adding five kilos, I lost five kilos. Hmm. Now, people are different. I get that. Mm -hmm. But if people are worried about their body weight, one fact is that um, you're not going to exercise your way. Like, you can help it. It's not the fundamental way. Because you can choose things that can way outrun, you know, way dominate your calorie balance. So Mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. Um, It can be complementary. It's fine, but it's the most important thing for your health. (coughs) Just start thinking about what you're eating. And that's going to be the solution for what size jeans you wear. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think also as people get older, the nutrition part is more and more important versus the 
At least uh, that's what I found for myself. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a physiological reason for that because that's called insulin resistance. And we don't think that it's weird getting gray hair. And we don't think it's weird like having less stiff joints, but you can do stuff about that. You can do exercises. Well, with nutrition, as you get older, the insulin isn't as, uh, you don't have as much insulin. It doesn't drive you know, carbohydrate into muscle and as effectively. And so you're right. You know, and that's why we talk about the middle age spread and people adding you know, 10 kilos. Like a kilo a year is not a big deal to add. Um, and so you can see it and it's not you know if you just keep making the choices that you could make when you were 20 mm-hmm. um that's going to happen and uh, but it's not natural like you see people and you know their skeleton you know you see people and then you know well their skeleton was the same when they were 18 and now they're carrying you know a lot more poundage and and they often don't want to but the media hasn't been giving clear messages and mm-hmm. one of the problems with all health messages we confuse people and then it becomes difficult and you know obviously the carbohydrate companies have had a big interest in confusing they don't want to say that coke is great for you but they just want to confuse you and say and nothing personal about coke you know we'll call it uh, sugar sweetened beverages and <laughs> you know my lawyers just <laughs> listened to that and said that i didn't say anything negative about coke and um but you know they want to make it confusing and say well maybe you could walk more or maybe you could do this and so when yeah. people are confused that's perfect because then the default is that they're going to take these things so like the smoking companies you know they wanted to just have they didn't want to say smoking was great they just wanted to not legislate that you had to smoke outside their big fight was to avoid legislation mm-hmm. and the food companies want to confu- you know who sell products that are um, obesogenic and diabetogenic which include sugar sweetened beverages that's proven convincingly they want to stop the legislation their goal is the legislation because then they know if it's not legislated they'll be okay mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and and you know they I live in New York City, so I'm sure you've, Mayor Bloomberg tried to limit the the sodas. You know, like you couldn't get like a, what is it, a big gulp or something? I don't know how big. I don't know. I mean, I don't drink soda, so I don't really, I don't really know what a big gulp is. But apparently, it's like, I don't know, like a liter or something like that that you just drink in a couple of hours. I don't know. Um, and he tried to do that, and it did not go over well at all which i found really surprising because i don't understand why you would want to have that much soda in the first place but i don't know that's just me um so he tried he didn't succeed in it but at least he tried you know and and he got a lot of flack for it as well yeah Yeah, they're massive commercial forces i mean uh, you know the coca-cola company has um more than 20 products that sell over a billion dollars each a year in revenue so Mm -hmm. there's a big force um, encouraging that business. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think this kind of discussion sort of leads into I think the last thing that we want to talk about, and that's social media and how we can all use social media. I think in a more positive way to address all of this, to address what we spoke about direct access, to address um, the the issues with with movement and exercise. So, how what are your sort of tips on social media because you have, you have a great social media presence so how can you how can we use it for for good or in jill's case arguing tendons either way yeah and i'll be brief because i know we're we're up against time and uh appreciate being on the call so on the on the interview with you um so in my role as a bjcm editor that threw me into social media because mm-hmm. obviously um we're in the communication and education business you and i and jill and uh, so um, I think it is a way that people can communicate very cheaply compared to television. For example, if we, if we go back 20 years, you had to get on television to run an ad and then the whole internet 
um, and social media means that mm-hmm. people can get, you know, someone like Adam Meekins can have 20,000, yeah. uh, 30,000 followers without the setup costs of um, buying a newspaper. And so that's good. I mean, Facebook has over a billion people on it. So there are, we can communicate a lot better than we can before, which is great. I think then the challenge for people who are trying to deal with it's one more time challenge for people already time poor. So mm-hmm. you've got your family, you've got your work, you've got your day to day, and then there's Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube. Instagram and, and LinkedIn exactly. and Periscope and Blab and. Exactly, and you've got to listen to healthy, wealthy, and smart. So PJSM, PT Pinecast. Yeah, so I think the, <laughs> the podcasts have um, helped because people are doing that while they're commuting. You know, I think what's happening is that mm-hmm. they're they're doing the podcast thing um, while they're doing something else. So that's not getting into the regular time. And I think that's one of the reasons why that um, has has become popular, mm-hmm. and uh, because the costs of the, creating a podcast are so cheap, you know, they're they're, they're free, obviously. So I think that's. Um, useful for people something like twitter and uh, as an editor i use it to say look here's free content and i think if you have barriers it's you know people aren't in the club it's not really that helpful so at the bjsm we tend to go here's our free content and i'm just trying to alert people to it Mm -hmm. and i'm hoping that people interested in sports pt um and physical activity will think well here here's a menu i can follow jill cook i can follow um you know people in the sports physio area and that way I can just scroll down and it's not a burden you know it's not like answering an email if they don't get to Twitter today it'll Mm -hmm. be there tomorrow Mm -hmm. and the big stories are repeated on a bunch of Twitter accounts and you'll get to them so I think that can be something you can do while you're waiting for a train or a plane or something like that Um, I think it's a great way for niche audiences to get together. So I think the problem with mass media was that you had to get this thing out to everyone and who really cares. Whereas if we say we're, you know, a tendon interest group, for example, then Twitter's a good way of following the tendon people. Mm-hmm. And if Jill, there actually is an international sports science of tendon you know, group, and then they've got a conference coming up in Cape Town in uh, November, I believe. It's actually in October. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's great because it's easy to follow that, whereas before you have to try and get it in the journal. So I think it's cutting the advertising revenue from the traditional mm-hmm. uh, channels. Mm-hmm. But these subgroups, the Patello-Ephemeral Group had a meeting in Manchester you know, last year. And so that's one way of keeping up to with you know, things, Facebook, Twitter. So I think short answer is um, as a user, I'd just decide how much time can I allocate to it. Um, and you can observe. You don't have to sort of you know, be active. So we call that a lurker in a nice way. You can just oh, sort of yeah. be lurking and following really. Because following sounds a bit like sheepish, you know. So I think lurking sounds lurking weird sounds well. kind of icky. Okay, not good. Okay. <laughs> so we're looking for a better term for someone yeah. who's enjoying the spectacle but not actively involved. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but some people feel like if you're going to get on Twitter, I've got to tweet. Well, if you want to get a following, you're going to have to tweet a lot. So mm-hmm. is that really part of your job? I mean, it's part of your job. It's part of my job. So that's okay. But I'm not sure that that's really a goal. Like to end up with 500 followers, it's like what's the point right but then you know there's Facebook you might want your friends to know about parties and things so I think people are finding out the different media channels themselves and making their choices and I think the people who are across the channels you know we're trying to prov- supply content in the right form so mm-hmm. it's sort of Pinterest we're saying well is there a form of you know BJSM content that works on Pinterest you know our podcasts have a set sort of deal we try to give people a clear message in 20 minutes with you know sports PT mm-hmm. and then they know what they're getting if they want um, a broader perspective they want an hour with someone they'll go to Eric Myra's mm-hmm. Uh, set or something mm-hmm. like that. So I think if we're consistent, the users can go where they like. Yeah, so it all comes down to consistency and kind of 
knowing what you want what you want to get out of it. I mean, I feel like social media, what you put into it is what what you're going to get out of it. And you just have to know going in, what are your goals? What are you looking for? And then you can kind of be a little more laser focused and niched and and find those find the Jill Cooks or find the BJSMs or what have you that are really that really interest you versus just having following people just to follow and just having followers just to have followers, I think doesn't make any sense, you know? And if I, if I could summarize kind of what you just said, that would be it. All right, excellent. All right, now, where can people find you? So what's the Twitter handle of, of you? <laughs> well, like Jill Cook, I'm very shy and I like to sort of hide. No, um, but, yeah, the BJSM, I disagree. <laughs> um, as an editor of BJSM, you know, Sports Physio Channel, um, they can, if you Google BJSM, you'll get there. Podcast actually comes up. If you mm -hmm. Google BJSM, it comes up straight away into Google, which is cool. We've had over 800,000 listens to the BJSM podcast. So we're open to your suggestions, which you can send by um, you know, email, Google, Twitter, um, kid, uh, carrier pigeon, they're all good. Um, <laughs> so that's probably the, the simplest way for people to, um, to get in touch have a look, you. just to check that out, see if yeah. it works for them. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I've been wanting to do this for quite some time now. So I'm really glad that CSM worked out. So thank you so much for, for coming on. I appreciate it. No, congratulations on your work, Karen. And thank uh, you. thanks very much for having me. Thank you. And thank you all. Yeah. Clap, clap, clap. Thank you. And if anyone has, maybe we can, if anyone has any questions, like any burning questions, um, I'm going to get up. And Jill, if you want to sit down. So if anyone has any questions, now's your chance. We've got like a couple of minutes. So anyone? Yeah. Yeah, come on over. So just say your name and. Um, Mark Alexander, just curious to the younger professionals in the room, any advice you can give at the start of their careers to uh, achieve their goals? Please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's simple. Don't burn yourself out. Like. I did, certainly. I went into research because I was exhausted clinically mm. looking after athletes and I think we have to be really careful about that. Um, and the second thing I think is take every single opportunity. Uh, I know they're contradictory. Every <laughs> single opportunity you can get <laughs> because you never know where it's going to lead you. Yeah, very true. Very true. <coughs> Dr. Khan, any advice? Good? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, hi there. My name is Lisa. I'm from New York City. Uh, my question is about tendonitis. A tendonitis is different from tendonitis, right? And um, grassland technique on tendonitis, how good is it? Okay. Um, tendonitis is a term we don't tend to use now. So tendinopathy is a term that means you have pain and dysfunction in your tendon without actually knowing what's actually happening within the tendon. So we tend to prefer that term because it's more generic. So I prefer that to tendonitis, which implies an inflammation. The, I don't know that technique. I know there is some research going on, but I would argue vehemently that most tendons need to be left alone and not to be um, poked, prodded, injected, or otherwise uh, insulted. That would be my opinion. Great, great. Anyone else? I saw, did you have a question? Yeah, Matt. Hi, I'm Matt Mastenbrook, a DPT student at WashU in St. Louis. So you say you see a lot of the uh, tendinopathy the second time around. Why do you think you're seeing them second time around? Why aren't they getting fixed the first time when they go to a physiotherapist or a physical therapist? 
I think it comes back to what we said is people, people's ability to assess and to plan and to clinically reason through complex conditions has disappeared or is, is not, not taught very well perhaps and people don't train themselves very well. People take the simple route, they do the simple things and that works for the simple conditions, but anything more complex, it fails. And that's, tendons are, are complex. Then, you know, if they weren't complex, people would get better. Mm. Um, and they don't. And as I say, everyone I've seen, most, yeah, there's bleedingly obvious things that have been done wrongly or not done at all. Mm. Great. Anyone else? Oh, yeah. Uh, Jimmy McKay, I'm a student physical therapist. So you talked about PTs being on par to being able to spot red flags. And for some reason, there's um, a feel, I think it's a little bit in America, a little bit of little man syndrome. We try to overprove ourselves to the rest of the healthcare team. What's an effective way we can do that so that an orthopedic surgeon would look at us and say, okay, I understand that you're an expert in your realm and I'm an, an expert with the thread and the screws without having to, to stand up and try to beat our chest. What's one, just, I mean, you can't solve the entire problem in just one podcast, maybe two, but um, mm. what would be one good thing to do in, in a respectful way to kind of gain their trust? Jimmy, I think she can edit that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, yeah, I guess w when you've got a lot to offer, there's always a challenge of how do you to show that to people without spelling it out. And I think it's about being authentic and, and patient. So um, not expecting it to happen on the first meeting, maybe like a date, you know, you don't want to show all your tricks on the first date and hopefully <laughs> it gets better over time. Like my wife would disagree with that. <laughs> um, so I think continuing to, you know, um, prove, do good work and become very skilled in your job and then I think it'll manifest by you being able to be authentic. So I think having a very solid foundation um, rather than trying to have sizzle, you know, so that'd be my suggestion. Um, and if you feel like you need someone to do something, like it's like, look, I can handle this, I've got all this training, and I think sometimes you need to spell it out. And the way I'd do that would be to frame it and say, look, this might come as a surprise to you, but just because I've got an Australian accent, you know, I'm not a complete moron. Um, and so then, and then I'd go and say what it is. So I think that's one of the lessons in sort of negotiating things. If you're going to, as long as women are in a situation where they get told if they're assertive in a meeting, they get blamed for being bossy. And yet, if they're not assertive, you know, then they don't get their voice across and the men dominate. That's a classic in, you know, male-female communication theory. So then the strategy that's I've read about that is for the woman to say, look, this is going to come across as seeming a bit um, challenging, but I need to make this point. Yeah, so that's just what I read. And yeah, great, great. Anyone I think, else? I think Jill should comment on it because she's had to deal with that. <laughs> I mean, Jill's had to deal with orthopedic surgeons her whole life, and she is in that position where she's had a ton to offer. And I bet she's had orthopedic surgeons give uh, physio patients inappropriate rehab advice after operation. And my question to Jill would be, what have you done in that situation? Jill? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th I think it's really simple. I think the more show you have, the less substance you have behind you. And mm -hmm. I think exactly what Karam says is do your job, do it really well, know your stuff, and eventually people can't ignore you. I, I think if you go in with your bells and whistles, you'll fail. Having said that, there's always a group of people that cannot be told 
and will not ever be told. And I think you just got to pick your targets. Mm. Yeah, good Thank advice, you. good advice. Anyone else? Yeah. Good. All right. Well, thanks again, guys. This was great. So thank you.